Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. The reading can be found on page 1137. It's taken from Romans chapter 10, beginning to read at verse 1. Brothers, My heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the end of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Moses describes in this way the righteousness that is by the law. The man who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or, Who will descend into the deep? that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith we are proclaiming, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, And it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. But I ask, did they not hear? Of course they did. Their voice has gone out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Again I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you envious by those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. And Isaiah boldly says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. But concerning Israel, he says, All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Jill, thank you very much. Uh, Last week, you'll remember, we went on a river cruise through Romans chapter 8, 
we passed through that great chapter, and as we did, I tried to point out the significant landmarks. This week, uh, we need to get uh, in a hot air balloon, because if it was hard to get through one mighty chapter in 30 minutes, this evening we're going to try and get through three chapters in 22 minutes, but it is possible. And to do it, we'll be taking a bird's eye view of uh, Romans uh, chapters 9 to 11 as we sort of float over in this hot air balloon. Uh, Hopefully it is only in a balloon where the hot air is, but we'll see. Being high up, we should be able to see the whole landscape uh, and I believe understand these chapters better as a result. Now let me uh, pray uh, to that end. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that we would see in these chapters the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of yourself. We pray that our minds would be blown by your unsearchable judgments and uh, we would realise who we are in relation to who you are and want to praise you as a result of all that we see and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me ask you, do you believe that uh, God's ways are bigger than anything that you or I can imagine? Have you got a grasp of how the Lord can not only understand everything that's going on in the whole world, but even be bringing about his great purposes through everything that is happening in the world? In your understanding, is God big enough that he can even be using the willful disobedience of people to ensure the salvation of more people? That is the sort of thing that we're going to encounter as we look at Romans chapters 9 to 11. Now remember, Paul is writing this letter to persuade the church in Rome to support him on his missionary journey to Spain. He's going to stop in on his way through past Rome. He's going to stop in on Rome before he goes off to Spain. And he wants the Christians in Rome to support him by giving money, by going with him to Spain to plant churches and by praying. That's a huge ask. I'm going to ask you to get money out of your pockets to support me. Some of you I'm going to ask to go to Spain with me from Rome, to pack up, not just for a week or two, go and start a new life in Spain. But of course the Christians in Rome don't know Paul. And there's one big issue that Paul will need to overcome if he's to get the wholehearted support of the entire church family in Rome. Paul, as he says several times, is the apostle to the Gentiles. Gentiles being anyone who wasn't born of Jewish descent. But the church in Rome has in it both converted Gentiles and converted Jews. And it seems, we'll see this later on when we get to chapters uh, uh, 14 and 15, it seems there are tensions in the church over how those two groups of Christians, converted Gentiles and converted Jews, how they live out their faith in Jesus Christ. There's tension there. And so Paul needs to address the place of the nation of Israel in the plan of God if he's to get the whole church family supporting him in this missionary journey to Spain and that's what he does here in Romans chapters 9 to 11 it is a big issue about where the nation of Israel stand in the plan of God and so he begins these three chapters by speaking of his own deep concern for his people the Jews because remember uh, Paul is a Jew Uh, come with me to chapter 9 verses 1 to 3 and listen to his pain Don't just listen to what I'm reading. Listen to the pain. Listen to the heartbeat of Paul. Romans chapter 9 verse 1. I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. What is he going to say after that build up? I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could 
I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Do you feel it? Paul longs for the nation of Israel to become Christians. And he feels it so acutely, he even says at the beginning of verse 3, that he'd be willing to be cut off from Christ. It is a remarkable thing to say, especially when you look back to the end of chapter 8. It ended, do you remember last week, it ended with Paul convinced, verse 38, that nothing in all creation, verse 39, will be able to separate us from the love of Christ. Paul has total assurance that he can't be cut off from Christ's love. And then he says, chapter 9, verse 3, I wish I could be cut off from Christ. It's a most remarkable wish. Nothing can separate me from the the love of Christ. But if it were possible, I would be willing for that to happen for the salvation of my people. It just demonstrates Paul's overwhelming love for his people. Uh, Just after we moved here eight years ago, my mum was taken very ill. She she almost died then. In fact, she died uh, several, five years later, but she almost died then. And as my dad sat by her bedside, believing that she would die in a few days' time, if not before, he said to me that he wished he could swap places with her. And I could tell he really meant it. He loved her so much, his wife of nearly 60 years, he loved her so much, he would have died for her if it meant that she could live. Now that is something of what's going on here, except it's more than that. Paul is demonstrating his remarkable love for his people, the Jews, saying not just that he would die for them, swap places with them if they were on their deathbed, but he would actually be willing to miss out on salvation if it meant that the Jewish nation would be saved. Now, it's only when we get this, it's only when we feel the sincerity of Paul's love for the salvation of others that we really get the immensity of these chapters. Paul is a legend. He loves people that much. And when it comes to Israel, Paul doesn't get why they won't follow Christ. Look at verse 4. Of the people of Israel, he says, theirs is the adoption of sons, theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the, the receiving of the law, the temple worship and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, the forefathers. And from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. See what he's saying? The Jews were uniquely privileged by God. So how could they not recognize Jesus as the Christ? And why has God not made the Jewish nation Christian? That's the real issue. That is Paul's dilemma in these chapters. And we've seen he really feels it. So with Paul's agony in mind, now come with me to the end of these three chapters to see how they end. It's a remarkable change by the time he gets to the end. Chapter 11, verses 33 to 35. Listen to these words. So he starts in agony. He ends praising God. Verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? From him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. By the end of this section, Paul is praising God for the depths of his riches, his mercy and his wisdom. Now that tells me that as we we understand chapters 9 to 11 biblically, they should leave us breaking out in praise for our God. If I do a half decent job tonight, we should want to praise God 
Whatever the issues we encounter here, and there we will come across things that don't sit easily with us, but whatever the issues we come up against here, we can know we haven't understood them correctly or biblically unless they leave us wanting to praise God. Finally, by way of introduction, you didn't even know this was the introduction. Well, it is. By way of introduction, see how Paul deals with his dilemma. He has these questions for God all the way through. He can't understand why the Jews haven't become Christians. And to get the answers, he turns to the Old Testament. If you have a church Bible in front of you, look at the bottom of pages 1136 and 1137. Look right at the bottom, at the footnotes, littered with Old Testament references. Because as you read through chapters 9, 10, 11, again and again and again and again and again and again, it's the Old Testament that is quoted. See, Paul asks God's questions, steep, serious questions, and he gets the answers from the scriptures. That's how he hears God. Great lesson for us. If you're perplexed, theologically perplexed as he was, or personally perplexed as he was, if you are asking questions of God, then read the Bible for the answers. And when you get the answers, if you've understood them properly, you will find yourself wanting to praise your God because he is so magnificent, so wise, so full of mercy, so worthy of glory. Well, enough of the very big picture as we float across in our hot air balloon. Uh, Let me now point out some of the landmarks. In chapter 9, verses 6 to 13, this question is asked. This is the question. Does the failure of the Jews to follow Jesus as Messiah mean that God's word can't be trusted? Let me say that again. Does the failure of the Jews to follow Jesus as Messiah mean that God's word can't be trusted? See, doesn't the Old Testament say that the Jews are God's people, that they will be saved? And if it does, and they're not trusting Christ, then can we trust God's word? It's the question in the back of Paul's mind, and he answers it in verse 6, chapter 9, verse 6. It is not as though God's word has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. He just comes out with it. No, God's word hasn't failed. It's always been the same right throughout the Old Testament, right throughout Old Testament history, right throughout the history of Israel. Not everyone who is born of Jewish descent is part of God's real Israel. Let me put it this way. Not all ethnic Israel are spiritual Israel. Not everybody born a Jew is a real Israelite, is is a true person of God. And he says that's always been the case. Look at Abraham's descendants, he says in verse 7. And he points to Isaac. Isaac was a son born of Abraham, but he wasn't Abraham's firstborn. Know who Abraham's firstborn was? It was Ishmael. But Israel's line came through Isaac. This is very important. Ishmael was Abraham's firstborn, but he was born naturally, without any intervention by God. But Isaac was born because of a promise. Do you see verse 8? In other words... It's not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. Now, if you're a bit confused, you don't understand the argument. It's exactly what we say about being a Christian. You're not a Christian because you were born into a Christian home with Christian parents. No one's a Christian because of their 
natural descent. That's what he's saying in verse 8. Because they were born in England. I know a lot of people think they're Christian because they were born in England, but nobody is. No, you're only a Christian when you are born again. I have three children. They're not Christians because Caroline and I are Christians. As if it's genetic. They're Christians because God has made them his own. And that's always been the case throughout the entire history of God's people. And then he shows it again. Verse 10. Isaac, who was not the firstborn, but who was the one through whom God's line would come. Isaac had twins. Do you remember? Esau and Jacob. Both born to the same father. They were twins. At the same time, they were twins. I'm a father of twins, so I know how this works. Uh, But it was the younger one, Jacob, through whom the promise came. And that was before either of them was born, before either of them therefore could do anything. And that is proof that God's election is, verse 12, verse 12, not by works. See, neither twin was out of the womb. They hadn't done anything. One of them was chosen to be the line through which God's people would come. Again, it's obvious nobody becomes one of God's people because of anything they do. We've seen that again and again through the book of Romans. Not even because of their ancestry. So here's the point for the big argument. Being an ethnic Jew does not make you part of spiritual Israel. It's just the gospel we know. It's it's the gospel we've been hearing in the book of Romans. A young person here. A young person here with Christian parents. You have a huge privilege being born into a Christian home, but that doesn't make you a Christian any more than, as they say, being born in a garage would make you a car or being born in McDonald's would make you a hamburger. No one is born a Christian. We become Christians, verse 12, through God's call. Do you see it there? Now, of course, that raises a very big question. And the question comes in verse 14. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Is it wrong of God to choose Jacob and not Esau? Verse 14, not at all. From verse 14 to 18, we see why. Look at verse 15. For God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. It does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. God's mercy. That's the only reason anyone's a Christian. Again, it's what we've seen throughout the book of Romans. No one, none of us deserves God's blessing. We all deserve to receive his curse. We've all turned away from him. So the only reason anyone is a Christian is because of God's mercy. And that's the dominant word in this section. Verse 15, mercy and compassion come twice. Verse 16, mercy. Verse 18, mercy. And you'll see it again in verse 23. It is out of God's mercy that God calls anyone. And it's when we forget that that we begin to struggle with election, as it's called. We think we all deserve God's love. Well, we don't. We have all rebelled against God. It's exactly what we saw in the first three chapters of the book of Romans. We are terrible sinners. We deserve nothing from God. But he's a God of mercy. Archbishop Cranmer understood this as he wrote the old prayer book and the confession. It is magnificent, this confession. Let me read it for you. And listen to how Cranmer understood this very point. We don't deserve anything from God, 
So we plead for his mercy. Listen to this. Almighty God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, maker of all things, judge of all men. Do you see who we're talking to? We acknowledge and bewail our manifold sins and wickedness which we from time to time most grievously have committed by thought, word and deed against thy divine majesty. See what he's saying? It's terrible what we've done to you. And then he says this. Against thy divine majesty, provoking most justly thy wrath and indignation against us. It's completely just that, that your wrath falls upon us. And then he writes, we do earnestly repent and are heartily sorry for these our misdoings. The remembrance of them is grievous unto us. The burden of them is intolerable. Then listen to these words, have mercy upon us. He repeats it, have mercy upon us, most merciful Father, for thy Son, our Lord Jesus Christ's sake. Forgive us all that is past and grant that we may ever hereafter serve and please thee in newness of life to the honour and glory of thy name. Do you feel it? Have mercy upon us. We don't deserve this. We deserve only your wrath and indignation. Now, when I get that, and we won't see it any clearer than in the book of Romans, when I get that, rather than see election as an unjust and terrible thing, we see it as a remarkable thing. It is amazing that any are chosen. It is amazing that you and I are chosen because by rights we should have been cut off from God forever. But God has acted out of mercy to make some his own. Isn't that remarkable? But what we see next is the moment that should blow us away and make us full of praise for God. It is this. That God is always acting in mercy even in his dealings with someone like Pharaoh. Look at verse 17. I'll read from verse 16 through to 18, and you'll see again that mercy is what surrounds verse 17. But it's verse 17 we're going to focus on for a minute and see how amazing this is. Verse 16. It does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Now, do you see this? Even when God dealt with Pharaoh, he was doing it out of mercy. Because mercy surrounds that verse. What is this dealing with Pharaoh? Let me remind you, it was back in the book of Exodus how Pharaoh refused to obey God. He was a wicked man. Pharaoh acted against God and against God's people. And while Pharaoh flexed his muscles thinking he was powerful, refusing to let God's people go, all the time God was using the whole situation to display his power, as it says in verse 17. And how did we see God's power? Do you remember? We saw it in the Exodus, in the crossing of the Red Sea, the great sea parting and the the, the children of Israel going right through. We saw God's power in the deliverance of Israel. And when those astonishing events happened, news of it went viral, as we would say today. End of verse 17, God's name was proclaimed in all the earth. And as you read on through the book of Exodus and Deuteronomy, you discover that all the nations had heard of the way the Lord had delivered his people and that meant that more people came to know the Lord. So here's the point. Do you see how even in raising up Pharaoh and hardening his heart, God was merciful, acting out of his mercy 
because more people came to know him as a result of him acting in that way. Now, when we understand that, we begin to understand why Paul praises God as he does at the end of chapter 11. You see, just as God acted in the Exodus, so he is acting in the life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In his mercy, God used Israel's unbelief so that the gospel of Christ may be made known over all the world so that Gentiles would receive God's mercy. God is so powerful that he used the wicked disobedience of the nation of Israel for the salvation of many Gentiles. And then we find in later on, he did it even for the eventual salvation of many Jews. And we see that in chapter 11. See, having said that not all those who are ethnically Israel are the real people of God, Paul asks in chapter 11, verse 1, did God reject his people? And to answer his question, Paul gives himself as an example. See that? By no means, he says, I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. See, Paul's of Jewish descent. He became a Christian. He was a Jew persecuting the church of Jesus Christ, and he was made a Christian believer. So he says, there's hope for the whole nation. But you might say, but Paul is just one person. That's hardly a sign that God has has not rejected the whole nation of Israel. And to that, Paul says, look at Elijah. Chapter 11, verse 2. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he appealed to God against Israel? Lord, they've killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left and they're trying to kill me. And what was God's answer? I've reserved for myself 7,000 who've not bowed the knee to Baal. Elijah, see, thought he was the only one who stood true to the Lord. But God told Elijah, there are 7,000 who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. And what was true then is true now, verse 5. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. What's the point of all that? Paul is saying his own individual salvation, one Jew saved by grace, gives him hope that God will save many Jews. And so he writes, chapter 11, verse 11. And we are coming towards the end. We're almost done. Chapter 11, verse 11. Again, I ask, did they, that is the nation of Israel, stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? And then he makes the point that we've seen in chapter 9. Let me remind you what it is. It is this, that God used the sin of Israel to mercifully bring Gentiles to God which in turn will make Jews jealous and so come back to God themselves. That's the point he makes, chapter 11, verse 11. Not at all, he says, they haven't fallen beyond recovery, not at all, rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. Now, do you see what Paul is saying? It is mind-blowing. God is so merciful and so sovereign in bringing about his purposes for his people That Israel's rejection of the Christ not only resulted in Gentiles coming to know the Lord, but Gentiles coming to know the Lord will result in many from the nation of Israel coming to know the Lord themselves. And why do I come to that conclusion? Because that's exactly where the whole section ends. Look at chapter 11, verse 28. He's speaking now of 
ethnic Israel, the nation of Israel. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies on your account, on the account of Gentiles. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gift and his call are irrevocable. This is the point. Just as you who at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. Your mind might be all over the place. Let me try and bring it all together. This is saying in his mercy, in his mercy, Israel's rejection of Christ will do two astonishing things. As Israel rejected Christ, first it resulted in more people coming to know the Lord, including ethnic Jews. Because firstly Gentiles became Christians, and then as Gentiles then proclaimed the gospel, more Jews became Christians. That's what he says. And second, this action showed how merciful the Lord is. You see, if, I, if I'm really nice to you, and uh, if you show me kindness... No one actually sees how kind you are, because I've been nice to you, just show me kindness back. But if I repeatedly ignore you and hurt you and shun you and speak badly about you and, show, and you show me kindness, then we see the depths of your mercy. That's how it will be with the nation of Israel. They have rejected Christ over and over and over again. And so when God, in his kindness, welcomes them back and makes him their own through the gospel the whole world will see how merciful God is. And all of that should make us praise God. The fact that God can manufacture all of that in that way, that it's all about more and more Jews becoming Christians, and it's all about the mercy of God being seen in a way that we've never seen it before. It should leave us praising God, verse 33. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom of knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who would ever have been able to trace out that God hardening the hearts of Israel would, not, would result not only in more Gentiles being saved, but also in more Jews being saved? See what he's saying? I couldn't have searched that out. The unsearchable judgments of God. Verse 34. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Well, not me and not any human being. Or verse 34, who has been his counsellor? Who did God go to have to work all this out? He didn't go to anybody, did he? He didn't have to have counsel with anybody. Verse 35, who has ever given to God that God should repay him? No one's ever given to God. No one's ever given anything to God. But he shows his mercy by giving us salvation. Verse 36, for from him and through him and to him are all things so to him be glory forever and ever. God's sovereign election should leave us amazed at what an astonishing God he is and how merciful he is, even when he acts in election. And that should give us a desire to do two things that I will give you in two sentences as we close. And that is, uh, it's in chapter 10, right in the heart of the, cha- of the section. Two things we should do. Chapter 10, verse 1, we should pray. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. We should pray for all people who are not saved. And the context here is that we should pray for the salvation of Jewish people to become Christians. And secondly, we should preach. 
chapter 10, verse 13. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the, the one in whom they've not believed in? And how can they believe in the one in whom they've not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? God's sovereign purposes are being worked out through the gospel. And because we know God has chosen some, we should pray that they would become come, come Christians. And we should preach Christ so that they can come to Christ. And tonight we should marvel at the sovereign purposes of God and praise our God for the depths of his mercy. Let's do that now. Let's pray. We've sung, Heavenly Father, depth of mercy. Can there be mercy reaching even me? We thank you that the answer is yes. We see that because you are just, we deserve your wrath to fall upon us. We know our sin, and yet the Saviour stands in our place, holding forth his wounded hands as we sung. Scars which forever cry for me, once condemned but now set free. Your mercy is remarkable. And thank you that your mercy is demonstrated in you allowing people who've rejected you again and again to come back to you. And thank you that your sovereign purposes are so remarkable that even in election you demonstrate um, how merciful you are in calling some and then amazingly in calling more than you ever would had you not chosen the ones you do. And so we pray, please, now that you'd help us to be full of thankfulness and joy for you tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.